0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hi, I'm Sam ben from The Grave Nation. For Heritage Radio Network on tour, we're broadcasting live from the Lake Creuset podcast studio at Charleston Wine and Food. Go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash charleston2019 to see our full interview schedule. We want to thank Lake Creuset and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food possible. I want to welcome our first guest today. Our guest is Jean Trimbach. Jean is the part of the 12th generation family at legendary Alsatian winery Maison Trimbach. Welcome to the Great Nation, John.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, thank you for taking time from a busy schedule um, at the festival to sit down with us. So I want everyone to get an idea of who you are, or who the family is, and we'll get into the region and we'll get into the winery. But, Give us a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today at the family winery because you were not always there, right?
2: Uh, not always, no, okay. but... Uh, so, so
1: give us a little uh, background.
2: This is obviously a long story because it all started in 1626 and uh, okay. <laughs> my my brother Pierre and I represent the 12th generation and the 13th generation has jumped in already, working hard, I hope. <laughs> and, uh, well, it has been a long legacy since. Always run by the family, operated by the family, owned by the family. But at the end of the day, it's a small winery producing the five classic grape varieties from Alsace. And uh, Let's tell everybody what they are. Well, primarily, I would say Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and a tiny bit of Pinot Noir. Right. So, Brother Pierre and I, my Brother Pierre, like I say, uh, is in the kitchen, so to speak, because uh, the kitchen for us are the vineyards, because quality happens in the vineyards. If you don't have quality grapes, you, ne- you will never produce in the cellar quality wine. So, my brother Pierre is in the vineyards, and at the same time, of course, he is in the cellar, right. working with the next generation. So, we are just actually in transition. We are just, like, here for a little bit of time. What, a generational transition? Yes, generation, okay. and the 13th generation will take over and hopefully transmit the trim back name to the 14th generation. So... We just, we just take it easy. Like every great chef, we try to produce the best possible wines. We try to produce the best Riesling, the best Gewürztraminer, the best Pinot Gris, all reflected by the ripeness, but also by the terroir, right. Right? the soil and the subsoil. Right.
1: We're, we're going to talk about that. I want to talk to you about wines of Alsace. But back to you a little. I mean, as a young man and up until now, you were not always... At the winery, I mean, you were in the U.S., you traveled around, you did a lot of wine biz stuff,
2: right? Yeah, but at the end of the day, I was always at the winery, because for us, there was no other choice to work at the winery, because our papa, our dad, would only give us a little bit of pocket money if we would work. So we had to work, and I was in the vineyards, I was in the cellar, I did everything, like did my brother, like did our children, and very naturally we decided to jump in. My brother Pierre is slightly older, so he took vineyards, vinification first, and I um, took what was left, and uh, in fact, my background is accounting. You have a business background. Voila. Okay. Uh, I I took what uh, what was left, if I may say. Right. Right. Um, All right,
1: so let's talk about Alsace. Let's, so Trimbach is this, multi-generational historic, you know, winery, you're in the Alsace. I think there's a lot of fans of Alsace, but I sadly say there are a lot of people that are not that familiar with Alsatian wines or have tasted them. So let's start, let's start with the region. Um,
2: let's talk geography, okay.
1: climate, terroir. you know, Absolutely. let's set it so, up for,
2: you know, what you're doing. So the region is located northeast part of France. So actually straight east from Paris and we are right there on the natural border and the natural border with Germany is the Rhine river so that's very clear straight east from Paris but what makes Alsace so great so unique so interesting but at the same time so complex is the multifaceted terroir that we have because you know Uh, We have been, um, the Black Forest and the Vosges Mountains have uh, been one mountain 50 million years ago. It all collapsed. And because of that collapse, we have so many different soil. And that makes Alsace so interesting. The great variety, and each of the great variety, Riesling, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Gewürztraminer, linked with all those different terroirs. We have Slate. We have um, limestone. We have sandstone. We have granite. You name one terroir in Alsace, we have it. So that's that's the complexity of the soil. And then, of course, not to forget the microclimate. We have one of the because of the, of post, the mountains, because and of the, the river Volge mountain range. We have one of the uh, driest climates in France, if not in the world. Because actually, we could compare our rainfall uh, amount, if I may say, to what's happening in Stellenbosch, South Africa. We exactly have the same rainfall amount per year. Roughly 500 to 600 millimeters of rain only. That's it. Yeah. So we have everything over there to produce great wines, but I have to confess that the sommelier love it, the chef love love it, love them love these wines because they pair extremely well with food, because they are based on minerality, based on fruitiness and based on natural ripe acidity. But sometimes people are a little bit uh, put off because, let's face it, the shape of the bottle. The shape of the bottle reminds people German wines. And here in the U.S. in particular, sometimes people think that German wines are automatically sweet. Sweet.
1: Well, which is they, not the case they anymore. They go back to what was imported 30, 40 years ago, which were not good wines. Exactly in the long bottles. So that's why. That's why I wanted you to sit here, and I wanted people to be more aware of, you know, what Alsace. So we wine. are
2: we are suffering a little bit from uh, that history and uh, voilà the shape of the bottle. But little by little, uh, I think people realize that Alsace. And our family in particular, if I may say, we produce dry wine, and this is definitely our family style.
1: Well, that, that was my next question. There is a specific family style. I mean, there's, there's been a phrase tossed around, the trimback style. Um, so let's talk about, get into as much depth of, of what that style is and how you get there. You know, whether it's from hand harvest, you know, what are all the aspects that make the trimback style?
2: Well, the Trimbach style is uh, like, like a great chef, or like ten great chefs. You give them a piece of salmon, and you come out with ten different preparation. Right. It's exactly the same at Trimbach. But the Trimbach style has been inherited from generation to generation. Say, my brother Pierre now has forty harvests behind him, and each of these harvests have been um, tran- um, transferred into a, a, a wonderful style, the Trimbach style, which he inherited from our father, Bernard Trimbach. Right, there's a history of the there style. There is a history. But I'm
1: also trying to get what that style is. You and know, Bernard Trimbach
2: is 86 years old, and he's still in good shape. And Julien, the 13th generation, will get that style too. How which old is he? Which is 27 years old. Okay. 27 years old. Which is, it's all about finesse, elegance, balance. And if you ask my brother Pierre, which are the three conditions to make a great wine, Pierre would say, number one, balance. Number two, balance. Three, balance. Really? Absolutely. That's his priority. We oui, we, oui, Balance, balance, balance. Numbers, um, say residual sugar, like, or... Uh, alcohol content or that doesn't matter it's all about the balance in his palate in his view and this is the Trimbach style but again the Trimbach style is is all about purity intensity energy energy slash natural ripe acidity and overall balance okay so to get there
1: there's obviously two important things that's the farming and agriculture. And then the wine making. And so how do you farm? Sustainably, organic, you know? All me-
2: our vineyards are organically farmed, okay. absolutely. And I suspect that the new generation, little by little, will go into... Take it uh, further? Well, uh, maybe bio- biodynamic, absolutely. Okay. But for me, I'm already very happy to say that it's all organic, and then uh, what counts is to be a minimalist in the cellar. Uh, I- in other words, do, d- do nothing in the cellar. No intervention. No intervention. Let it happen. So do you gravity press? Oh, gravity press. So of no course, all 100% hand harvested, gravity press. Explain what hand harvesting is. Well, we it, just... It's, it's, it is
1: what it sounds like. It, it's all by the hand. grapes come out of the picking boxes... They go on a conveyor belt. Yes. And then what And happens? then
2: they, get, they just get into the press. Because we. But people are picking out. We are picking them right. by hand. They're cut by hand. Cut and, by, and hand. by hand. Sorted by hand. Sorted by hand. And then we put the entire cluster into the press. So it's a whole cluster press. Absolutely. Which is stems. Stem and everything. berries. Yeah.
1: And what does that add to the wine? I mean, obviously, that's part of the trim back style. But does that give the balance that you're yes, going after? Yes, and
2: because it's a very gentle pressing, it's a very long pressing, three to four hours, so we get a little bit of natural tannin from the stem, which is part of the uh, structure of the wine as right. well. So it's not just the fruitiness, it's the tannin as well, the natural ripe tannin right. and uh, all the uh, phenolic aspects. This is just a
1: curiosity. Other Alsatian winemakers and I know you don't think about them all the time, but you're aware. Do, do most of the Alsatian winemakers um, do whole
2: cluster, or it really varies? I think it varies, but uh, most of them, at least 80%, I would say, do whole cluster pressing. Yes, yes. So yes. It,
1: it's, it, it's an important oui. element of
3: what ha, the region it, is it's doing,
2: it, per se. It's the tradition. Right. The only exception, of course, is the Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is completely distemmed because of the it's a long maceration, it's a 10, right. 12, 15 days maceration. So that would be the only exception.
1: But John, there's a movement in Burgundy where they're doing, you know, a whole cluster and all that. You know, Probably. Monsieur Jayer said, you know, D STEM everything, but now you have all these new yeah, winemakers. Yeah.
2: They you know, they want that complexity. We, we learn every day, we learn every day, and that's the beauty of our business. The climate change and everything, we always have to adapt. But more important I think that vineyards really adapt. extremely well. I'm very surprised to see because we had some uh, hot vintages lately. 2018 was one of them and it was super interesting to see how the vineyards adapted to those conditions. And they did well? They did very well. We thought that the quantity, that the volume would be small, short but at the end of the day, when we started pressing, when we saw the uh, free running juice out of the press, we were like, "Holy cow! More juice than expected." Really? So we were really so even really the surprised. were low, We the juice. We were expecting were much lower grapes. yields. Absolutely.
1: Um, one last thing about the trim box style. We talked about farming, hand harvesting, low intervention winemaking. The finished product. Stainless steel, casks, both, you know, what's your approach on that?
2: Stainless steel and cask, old cask. So, as you know, in Alsace, we are not talking new oak, barracks, new barracks. But all of us, all the uh, sellers, we have old, traditional, big cask. It's oak, but in many many uh, occasion we are talking uh, 40 50 60 70 years old cask old oak does that so impar- it's good it's good for the the breathing it's good for the, mm, the for the wine to start a kind of uh, little maturation process before bottling and this this is what we do at trimback we try to capture the fruit to capture the freshness to capture all what Trimbach is about into the bottle. In other words, we always bottle our wines the spring following the crop. Why? To capture everything in the bottle. It's a very important time. And in then, thing. and then, well, in some cases, we mature those bottles 10 years prior to release. 10 years prior That's to significant. release. This is our quality commitment. And one of the Riesling, well-famous Riesling, called Riesling Cuvée Frédéric-Emile or Riesling Clos saint which you had in the past. We don't release these wines before five, seven years because we believe that they are not ready. Bottle-aged. They're bottled and then the bottles are kept. Exactly. So they have some bottle-aged.
1: Yeah. Um, we'll talk about those in a minute. But there's no doubt Riesling is the most emblematic of Alsace grapes, right? Yes. Now... All the growers, the majority of vines in the region are planted to uh, Riesling?
2: Riesling is about 22% of Alsace's total plantation. That's it? 22%. Okay. For Trimbach, Riesling, all Rieslings we produce are up to 50% of what we produce. So you produce, you're a higher production than the region.
1: Is there a larger, um, or, what am I trying to say?
2: Is there a higher percentage of another grape? No. Is, is, Riesling it's is not, Riesling. everything. Spreads out Riesling there. Riesling is our passion. Riesling is our identity. Riesling is our soul. This is definitely Trimbach, and okay. all over the world because we export ninety percent of the production all over the world. The family, the Trimbach family, is known for its Rieslings.
1: All right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you in the hot seat for a second, and as an Alsatian winemaker. I'm going to ask you, how do Alsatian Rieslings differ from German Rieslings? Because the German Rieslings certainly, you know, are out there and have a great reputation. But tell me why.
2: Well, uh, some to start with, I, lo- I I love them both. I drink them both. Okay. I love them That's both. That's the
1: right answer of a true wine guy.
2: Yeah, yeah, but at the end of the day, the difference lies on the terroir soil and subsoil the uh, great variety of terroir we have in germany it's mostly slate in alsace we have five six seven other different terroirs. so terroir and as i said before not to forget the microclimate the microclimate which pushes the acidity down into the grapes and therefore when it comes to the juice and the wine the acidity and the overall balance is always different from Germany.
1: So the the luxury of the variety of terroir, not terroir, but the soils and the sands gives Alsace, you know, that edge over Germany, which is like you said, mostly slate. So uh, right uh, there. Absolutely. Because each different, whether it's limestone or sand or whatever, imparts a different yeah. y- you know, flavor to the wine. Um, Tell me about, let's talk about other great Alsatian grape varietals. I mean, obviously, and you mentioned all of them before, but, you know, let's enlighten people about, you know, the... After
2: Riesling, of course, and again, dry Riesling uh, in Alsace. I think that's important to be underlined again. After that, I would say Gewürztraminer, spicier. Gewürz means spicy, spicier Traminer. And the origin of this grape was Trentino Alto Adige. And we inherited Traminaire, which became Gewürztraminer uh, in the 1800s. Uh, and I think that this grape is very interesting as well because of its fruitiness, because of its aromatics, because of its spiciness. And again, Trimbach style Gewürztraminer is dry. Most of the people there believe Gewürztraminer is sweet, not Trimbach.
1: So the descriptions of Gewürztraminer are so good. What are the perfect food pairings?
2: It has such a distinct style. There are certain foods that it goes so well smoked with. Smoked food, smoked fish, smoked pork, smoked barbecue pork, and of course, all what we could eventually uh, find in Asia. Asian food, Thai food, uh, Chinese food, uh, Peking duck, you name it, all Asian food and Gewürztraminer. That's what I was waiting for you to get it. But again, dry style Gewürztraminer extremely well with these foods.
1: All right, so we've covered Riesling, Gewurztraminer, and then tell me the other great indigenous let's grapes. Let's go for
2: Pinot Gris. Let's go for Pinot Gris, which is not Pinot Grigio. Pinot Gris from Alsace is a different grape variety. So stop right there.
1: Pinot Gris is not
2: Pinot Grigio. No.
1: A lot of people in the United States drink crappy Pinot Grigio. I, I said you it, so not That's right. Is Pinot Gris a good profile replacement? You know, all the flavor profile? Pinot
2: Gris to me, Pinot Gris to me, Pinot Gris from Alsace is a great alternative to many, many, many Chardonnay. Because Pinot Gris is creamy, Pinot Gris is velvety, Pinot Gris is all about um, uh, yellow peach fruit, mango fruit, tropical fruit, and so on. I think Pinot Gris is definitely the Alsace alternative to Chardonnay. Okay, let's
1: let's stay in the theme. Great pairings for a, a Pinot. Pinot Gris.
2: Gris Pinot Gris loves the sweetness of the scallops. Pinot Gris loves the sweetness of the lobster. Hey, and because we Shellfish. are in Charleston, soft shell crab. There Pinot you Gris go. loves the sweetness of the soft shell crab. Alright, now Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc. You know what? Pinot Blanc is what I call my glue 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 wine. Okay. It's the wine I'm drinking from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m. It's very friendly. Easy it's Very drinking. easy to drink. Good food wine? Good food wine as well. Perfect with oysters. Perfect with seafood. Perfect with salads. Perfect with everything. That's the beauty of Alsace. Alsace wines are extremely versatile. They go with all kinds of food, including steak. Including steak. I had some what's master be- sommelier. What's, wait,
1: what's the best Alsatian steak wine? Riesling.
2: Mature oh, riesling, Mature riesling, up to a nice Because of residue. the minerality, because of the structure, because of the acidity, which is a little bit more polished. I had some master sommelier here in the U.S. pouring riesling with my steak. It was I fantastic.
1: I love hearing that. Um, you should drink what goes well and what you like. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. Now, there's a great grape I want you to talk about. Which I know you uh, vinify, and it's delicious, and it's starting to get some more recognition. And that's Sylvainer.
2: Sylvaner. Sylvaner, wait oui, it's called the sort of forgotten grape, but uh, more and more people pay attention to it again. But uh, I think if there was one grape that I would like to push is the Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir. Well, we'll get to that. Oh, okay, we'll get so, to that.
1: B- but Sylvaner is. Tell me a little about the characteristics and quality. It's,
2: uh, again, it's similar to Pinot Blanc. It's not super complex. Uh, It has a little higher acidity than Pinot Blanc. Uh, I I like them both. But, uh, again, here in the U.S., I would favor Pinot Blanc.
1: Okay. And then let's talk about Pinot Noir, because there's great Pinot Noirs Noirs from the region. You're, You're not making, of all the wines you make, I would say Pinot Noir is the smallest
2: output. Is that changing? Yes, you're right. Pinot Pinot Noir for us is 10 to 15% of what we produce. I suspect it to be the same for the Alsace region. Right. But it's growing because, uh, well, global warming helping. But at the same time, we have more vineyards of Pinot Noir and our vineyards are getting older.
1: So you're committed
2: Ah, wait oui, oui. wait. Older vineyards, better grapes, better tasting wine. Absolutely, and Pinot Noir from Alsace is getting better and better. I would really encourage your uh, listeners to really uh, try to, uh, to, to to try a bottle of Alsace Pinot Noir, and uh, you know, I think they represent very good value as yes. well.
1: Yes, I think the uh, the Alsacian Pinots are great, and certainly you should look for the uh, trim back. I can't... We're going to wrap up the show pretty soon, but I can't let you leave without talking about one of the great legendary wines, not from your vineyard, but of the world, and that is the Clos St. hune
2: Ah, Clos St. hune Thank tell you. Tell me a little... Tell Thank every- you. I didn't want to talk about it because no, it's such I, a I small did, production. I not want to spend too much time Because on it. we never have enough, but Clos St. hune is the iconic dry wrestling in the world. And, um, you know, uh, people talk about Clos St. hune they don't even talk about riesling anymore they just say closainteur right. give me a bottle of closainteur because it's really iconic it's its own entity it is uh, it has its little box there uh, very separate from anything else and uh, some top sommeliers in alsace call it the romane county the romane county of alsace small vineyard, 1.7 hectare only so very small production old but what vines, makes the wine what vines, makes the right? wine is the high proportion of calcareous and very old vines. Yes.
1: Calcareous is something in the soil, right? Exactly. Calcareous, so limestone,
2: limestone combined with degraded seashell, which we call mussel calc. Mussel, calcareous from the mussel, when Alsace, in the old days, 247 million years ago, was recovered with sea. Great.
1: So that's the close St. Hume. That is, if you really uh, want to try one of the great wines of the world, Look out for the Clos St. Youn. Jean, we got to wrap up. We could sit here and talk for a long time. There's a lot to talk about. But I appreciate you taking time Thank you. out of the festival to sit with us and enlighten us about the wines of Alsace and certainly about what your family is doing. Thank you to Jean Trimbach from Maison Trimbach. Um, we hope to see you soon.
2: Thank you so much. And always a pleasure and always a pleasure to be at the Charleston Wine Festival. Merci.
1: We hope to see you again. Thank you. Um, we're going to continue on we're going to sit down with Paul Chevalier hi Paul thank you for joining us yes well ha- happy to be here um, I'm talking to Paul Chevalier
4: Paul is it true you were Massachusetts born yes I actually was um, my, so my mother uh, my mother's American uh, born just outside of uh, outside of Boston my father father was French I actually met during okay. Navarre, so uh, I la uh, uh, the Chevalier name yes and Give me a little uh, background in your journey in life in wine, because
1: you, you've you had a colorful uh, background.
4: Oh, for sure, yeah. So it's a sort of a long story. So as you know, in, in America, uh, most winemakers would go to UC Davis or Fresno State in right. California to get, the, to get their degree in yes, viticulture. So I went to, in France, we have several schools. I went to the University of Champagne in Reims, um, where I have my degree in oenology and when I graduated from, from school many years ago, my first, my first position as a winemaker was uh, with Verve Clico, which was a... Uh, Legendary yes, champagne house. Yes. and it was, it was a great experience working with a winemaking team. And to be very honest, I wasn't really any smarter than, than anybody else, but pr- primarily because I spoke English, they said, oh, well, we're gonna send you, young man, t- uh, to New Zealand, because in, in 1989, we purchased a property in New Zealand called Cloudy Bay. So I was able to go to New Zealand um, and introduce Cloudy Bay in 1991 in New York to America. Wouldn't Um,
1: you say Cloudy Bay was responsible for that uh, Sauvignon Blanc? Oh, for sure. You know, just the way Mm -hmm. Santa Margarita, Pinot, Grigio. Establishing the category, Yeah, I mean, Cloudy Bay really, and it was a terrific product, too. Yeah,
4: Yeah, and I I often say, you know, when you're working today, of course, with Chateau d'Esquart Whispering Angel, Whispering Angel is perhaps a combination of the Verve Clico marketing, uh, that beautiful, what we call the yellow label, and the innovation of Cloudy Bay, because again, to make Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand was very innovative. And I think, you know, what we're doing at Chateau Desclans with Whispering Angel is very innovative rosé winemaking. Right. Um,
1: So, we'll get into Desclans specifically and the products and all that, but I I wanted to ask you about a few things. Why is rosé hotter now than ever? Um, what do you? I, I mean, it's. There's always been good makers, you know. It's always been a delicious wine. Some people see it as seasonal, the way they see champagne as celebratory, um, but it just seems so hot right now. I mean, what's your take on that?
4: I think you know. I'll be honest. So, so you know, with, with the, the the story with Chateau Descol and you know Sasha Lachine and, and uh, unfortunately the late Patrick Leon, uh, 2006 was our first vintage, and we I remember coming. Uh, to the United States, it was specifically New York, the Hamptons, and a little bit in Nantucket in the summer of two thousand Rose Martin. yes, in summer of two thousand and seven uh, Rose was not trendy at all in the summer of two- so so this is very, very recent, so it took a lot of um, time and effort, I think one of the things we do. At Chateau Disco and Whispering Angel, we do a lot of education. Um, we host, this is why we're here at the Charleston Wine and Food right. Festival, is over 450 rosé events every year just in the United States alone, teaching and educating about what we consider to be true rosé from Provence, being light and pale, but specifically not sweet and the biggest challenge we had, um, again, back in the early days of 2006-2007, is rose. As you know, had a very bad reputation in America because of the days of it went from essentially uh, Matus and Lancers, uh, perhaps in the 70s, then to sort of white Zinfandel in the 80s, and the, well, those Sought were all p- home. White home for sure, and those were all primarily sweet. Um, it it kind of tainted the uh, it image and it reputation. It did, and and very few people really, in the United States anyway, really knew and appreciated rosé because they had this misconception that it was a sort of inferior, which it probably was, inferior quality quality sort of wine. Unless they had visited the Côte d'Azur, if they had visited Provence, they would have experienced what we call true rosé. So we've come a long way. I I really think it's through education. Um, I think that's important. Yeah. And And getting uh, the
1: right product in front of people. Are you one of those guys that thinks only the good rosés come from Provence?
4: No, I, and actually a very, very good, good question. So the challenge we have is, and we're we actually were thinking about this because we're, we're at the stage now where it's going to be very difficult to continue to grow Whispering Angel as a brand just because we don't have enough vineyards and there's not to be able to source the, 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 the right grapes. So there are, two, there are two things which I think are different Is is I think not all red grape varietals are ideal for making uh, rosé. I'm not a big fan of uh, rosé from Cabernet Sauvignon. It seems like uh, yeah. the trend, though. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you pick yes. up a rosé. Yes. and, Damn it, every grape. Everybody and their everybody and their mother is making rosé. Probably, probably with every <laughs> grape, but every grape probably yeah. because of the success, of the success of Whispering. But the, the challenge is this. Well, that,
1: that, you you were about mm-hmm. to answer my question. Is there too much rosé out there in the market, and is quality being compromised? And I think you're about to well you know, approach that.
4: Yes, for for us again, for us no because. We're, we're very adamant about what we do. Um, Whispering Angel is still produced at Chateau d'Esclon, so it's not made in a factory nor a cooperative. It's made, it's made on-site in the same way we, we started in 2006. Again, getting back to this whole grape conception is, is making rosé is not that different to, uh, I often illustrate um, making tea. So you have your tea and you sort of seep it, right? And if you seep it a little bit, it's lighter and the longer you seep it, the the darker the tea becomes. But the challenge is, as your tea becomes darker, it also becomes more bitter and astringent. And there's a very fine line between where does a rosé stop and a red wine begin? Think about lighter styles of reds like Beaujolais and cabernet so folks and <laughs> does grape play into that
1: immediately like certain grapes will make it harder yes so or they're easier to get yes to the darker so if
4: you think about varietals that have a very a really full-bodied cabernet Sauvignons and maybe sangio and those i really don't believe they're ideal Um uh, grenache is for for sure for us anyway grenache produces that elegant style well, you cannot do that well, maybe Pinot a little bit, I suppose, but you cannot do that with all grapes. So, that's the first issue. The, the second issue is is ripeness. To achieve the style of Whispering Angel, which we produce, you do need a relatively warm climate to get these grapes ripe. If you don't, you will you will always have this issue. Sort of like what happens in New Zealand is, cool climate is difficult because you'll have higher levels of acidity, and then you get these styles of rosé that have a little bit of a bite to them. Yes, and bitter. The, yes, and the clientele today maybe they've been spoiled with Whispering Angels, they don't want that. They, they, they the first thing they look at is color. They want it light. The second thing they, they is, is mouthfeel, which is what most people taste with their mouth. Um, and if it's not smooth and easy drinking. So what's a good
1: mouthfeel for a good rosé? It's not going to be unctuous or full. It's going to be smooth. I mean, describe to me...
4: So, again... In Provence, the challenge is we're not allowed, it's against the law of the appellation, to make sweet rosé. So all Provence has to be less than, I think it's either two or three grams of residual sugar. Whispering Angel is almost zero. It's like 0.02 or something. No. Um, and since you don't have any sugar, is remember sugar is kind of what masks a lot of that sort of herbaceousness and, and flavors, is you have to be very careful that your wine is pure with fruit. So to answer your question is, rosé in your mouth should be smooth, and as it goes down... Uh, almost a sort of a viscosity, a certain thickness, which is not because of the sugar. It's probably more like glycerin and other things. Right. But it just goes down, and there's no bite. And and this whole expression of rosé all day is is really about you can drink it like... If you're feeling like, that, you'll <laughs> drink it all day. You drink it like water. and I, I, It's funny. I, I often joke about this. You don't just drink a glass of rosé. Uh, before you know it, you drank the whole bottle. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: the, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, just like champagne, which... I think it was perceived as a celebratory drink. For sure. Less and less now. It's a great food pairing, yeah. wine. It's yes. not a lot of wine lists and all that. Um, Rosé has been perceived as a summer drink. Oh, yes. And, and I yes. think you answered part of it. By educating people, you make them aware. But how do you dispel that?
4: Well, again, we get, remember, and and I would say technology as well. We've come a long way because I remember, to be honest, when I was when I was a a, a young man, I really I really didn't like rosé. There were very few uh, that I think were, were you know top quality. Of course, you had Domaine d'Ar and Tan Pier, you know, some some of these domains, in, in, in France. But a lot of them, and my father drank Tavel, which was this, and I didn't really like Tavel because this was, it was kind of rough and tough, I and and and, it, and and you drank it three or four years after it was released, and it started to turn brown. But I think with you know properties like Chateau de Sclons, the investment in technology, winemaking material, never happened in the south of France. Everybody in Bordeaux invested because they had more money. Everybody in Champagne invested. In the south of France, they were rather poor. So the what we used to call the QB, which is like a jug, we would go to the cooperative and get a QB of, of rosé for six, seven francs, uh, drink it with some ice cubes in the summertime, and, and then by the time summer was over, that was the end. of. The, that's really rich. So there's the, the rosé winemaking has become much more Uh, serious, technologically sound. And the rosés that are being produced today were not produced uh, even 10 years ago. So it's it's almost a a rosé revolution is going on. Recent. Um, I mean,
1: past decade. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and because of investment. So uh, one of the challenges we had, I remember, with Whispering Angel is is we, we're a little bit more expensive than other Rosés. And, and when we first released it, um, there was resistance from the buyers and the restaurants. And they said, oh, it's too expensive. It's never going to sell. And I said, well, why does Rosé have to be the $9.99 special? Uh, what if we made a better Rosé? People will pay more money for it. And we've proven with Whispering Angel that that, that couldn't be done. Yeah, so.
1: I mean, that's an important aspect. Um, let's talk about Chateau de Um No doubt you make some of the buzziest which is a cool thing. Some of the most sought-after rosés. Um, Sasha took over the winery, like you said, in 2006. 2006. How did all that happen? I think the answer, it starts with product,
4: but it does and, and in a vision Sasha is certainly a visionary and, and actually, to be honest a lot of people thought he was a little crazy because he sold you know his father had this property in, in Margot pre Sheen. he sold that and everybody said how can you sell your father's property and invested, it of course in, in Provence to make, to make the goal to make the best rosé in the world and everybody said you're crazy. But, you know, he proved them wrong uh, with this investment, with this technology, that Rosé doesn't have to be cheap and cheerful swimming pool wine. It can be a really serious wine. And as we get to, you know, some of the other expressions we make, like the the L'Eclan or the Gurus, um many people confuse them. And that reminds us a little bit of a, a white burgundy, like a chassagne montrachet or a Merceau. And, and that really did not exist uh, before, before Sash in 2006. So,
1: let, let's talk about that. Those are two the Leclan and the Garou. Yes. So those are the two premium luxury Yes. I don't know how you describe them. Well, I think they're,
4: they're, the, the concept was, was uh, because we had these vineyards of old vine to make small batches, so, sort of like in Burgundy. So the Leclan and is very similar in production. So old vines, Leclan is 56-year-old vines, and the Garou is almost 100-year-old vines. Take the juice, the same process as making Whispering Angels. We let, let the skins, so- Grenache, let the skin soak three hours, three and a half hours, but instead of putting the juice, pink, into a stainless steel tank, which is the standard practice, we said, why don't we barrel ferment? And that, ah. that had never been done before. And they said, so it created a style, which is, uh, and I've had actually, and Sasha was there, is we did these sommelier tastings in the United States, in New York and Las Vegas. And the, one of the sommelier said, well, that doesn't taste like rosé. And Sasha says, well, who are you to tell me what rosé should taste like? So, I mean. And who, nobody <laughs> was barrel fermenting? No, that didn't exist. So you innovated. Burgundy, Burgundy winemaking techniques. Uh, and we couldn't use a normal-sized barrel, which is 220, because otherwise it would be too oaky. Right. So we went to a large, uh, what we call a demi-mouille. Uh, first vintage was 2006, um, was a 500-liter demi-mouille. It came out a little too oaky. So very quickly, we went to a 600-liter demi-mouille, French oak. He kept tweaking it. Uh, tweaking it. And then it kept, and, and <laughs> it's true, the first year we only made three barrels. And we didn't even know if we could sell it. And we said, well, Sasha said, if we can't sell it, at least we can drink it.
1: (laughs) Well, that worked out well. Um, So there's Whispering Angel, Garris. Let's talk about some of the other rosés that are there that are, you know, even more accessible, (laughs) price points a little less. Yes. Tell me about your other SKUs.
4: So we just released um, this year. This is one of Did the reasons. Did you bring something in for us to drink? I brought us. Yes. Can somebody
1: a... bring me a glass yeah, over I mean, so I of can
4: the... glug, glug this with Paul? Yeah. It's, it's, it's this. Well, it's it's that time of day, right? Rosé time of day. I mean, that's right. In France, it's probably a paratif time. So that's okay.
1: Thank you. So we're drinking the new vintage. New vintage of Whispering
4: Angel 2018. 2018. Tell, tell us quickly about it. So this is um, was we picked in September of, of 2018. We bottled um, just before Christmas, in late December, um, and this is now in America, and we're in the, what early March, and we're drinking the the new rosé from 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 Provence, of Whispering Angel Grenache based. Although we do use another grape, which we call Rolle, which is uh, about spell. spell R O L L E. Rolle Roll is, is the French word for Vermentino. So, oh, so it's a white, a white? White grape. And, and in Provence, it's planted. Uh, very few places in France actually make roll as a white, maybe in, in Corsica. But it's a very good blender. It adds in uh, sort of aromatics. If you think about, you know, Vermentino, it kind of pops very floral. Yes. And, and that very kind white. of that kind of mouthfeel. So one of the secrets of Whispering Angel is a little bit of roll mm. um, in the blend. Mm. And just that sort of um, rich sort of uh, smoothness uh, and just, just very accessible, very drinkable. Very, It's delicious. Um, and then there's a couple other Rock Angel, like Ron. right? Yes, let's so, talk about those
1: quickly. So and Palm,
4: from the yes. So there are two two separate things. We have Chateau Descon, which is Whispering Angel, and then from the vineyards behind the property. That's where the rock angel comes from, and the rock angel is called rock angel because it comes from a very rocky soil. So rocky soil produces these characteristics of uh, uh, minerality. You're just with with uh, Jean Trumbach, so we understand minerality right. from 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 okay. Alsace, and uh, and then Lake Longarousse being the more barrel fermented, uh, oak aged, single vineyards. The palm, which is one of the reasons why we have this rose oasis at the Charleston Wine Food Festival, is we released the palm um, actually. A little bit last year as a test, but this is the the official kickoff is this year, and the palm will be as we speak uh, rolling out in in uh, supermarkets like like Target and places. And we did it for one specific reason, as, as you mentioned, the rosé category has exploded. Um, a dozen rosés in 2006. Today, in the last three to four years, there must be 400 new rosés that have hit the market really? from all around the world—California and Argentina and Chile, and it's Italy and Spain. The challenge is, I think the consumer, we have to be very careful, can get a little confused. Um, And some, Uh. well, some of these rosés, remember this idea of rosés being from Provence being dry. So a lot of these, these, uh, especially more of the commodity brands, uh, are sweet. And so it would really upset me if we go back 30 years and start reintroducing sweet rosés in America when, when Whispering Angel has been spending so much time and energy to teach what real rosé is, dry rosé. So the palm, it's actually the palm by Whispering Angel is the name. And it's almost like you know you have duck horn and duck horn has decoy. Right. So it's our second label.
1: Great hybrid, great yes. maker.
4: When we designed the- it to make it more approachable, not for the Whispering Angel consumer. We, the Whispering Angel consumer is already they're locked in for life. Um, I'm focusing on the Generation Z. So they're just coming 2021. They don't necessarily know very much about wine. They probably heard Rosé is trendy. They probably go to the Rosé Mansion in New York City and take pictures and Instagram. But they don't really know so much about wine. So the palm is to educate these young ones and and set them on the right path of Rosé. And someday they'll graduate to Whispering Angel, to Rock Angel, and maybe even Gurus. So it's a whole evolution of your palate. And the palm is meant to design that. All mm-hmm. under one roof. All the way. Um,
1: we have to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but I need you to tell me a couple of things. Um, best food pairings for rosé. Ah. I know it's a general question, and each y- you know bottling differs a little. But for sure, rosé. Well, uh, if, we could, if you're eating
4: it with food, drinking it with food. I think it's interesting. So, in Sa- and Sasha will say this is you know specifically Whispering Angel. If you think conceptually, rosé in your mouth. It starts like a white, but it kind of finishes a little bit like a red, because you have a little bit more body. Therefore, you can get away with a lot more pairings. So traditional south of France Mediterranean cuisine, yes, so uh, uh, salad niçoise and bouillabaisse and those sort of things. If you extend throughout the Mediterranean coast, Spain and Italy now, you're on to hams and charcuterie and cheeses and things, okay, salads. but. Why not Asian fusion? You know that sort of spice that you get in sort of you know Thai. Uh, John was talking about yes. Gorch,
1: Tremonier. Yes, this would be another good S- S- match S- S- for you know, Asian. Yeah,
4: yeah, and and sushi. Why not? And then I'll flip the I'll flip the other side um, in you know sort of American uh, like Bobby Flay. You know spicy barbecue. Um, why not? It holds up quite well to those types of flavors as well. So really, I think pretty ac- versatile a- across across the board. Yeah, pretty versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Best temperature
1: Ah. to serve rosé. I think people uh, may throw it in the refrigerator. They may put it in an ice bucket. That may be too cold. I don't think it should be served without temperature. So tell people to enjoy rosé temperature-wise.
4: Yes. So, again, it's depending. Now, if you're in in an outdoor situation, it's difficult because your wine warms up. But the the golden rule for for, me. When you start. When you start. For me, the golden rule is, is, so. if I keep it in, which most people do in the refrigerator, is you take the bottle out, you pour it. If your glass steams up, it's too cold. Okay. I've <laughs> never heard that before. <laughs> and then once you spin, the glass doesn't steam up, then it's at the right temperature. Great.
1: Paul, I want to thank you for coming in. No, of course. Um, Abby, we're going to wrap up. Thank you for uh, talking about Rosé. Thank you for talking about Chateau d'Eclan. We got a chance to talk about you know, some of the wines and the grapes and all of that. Um, if people want to find out more about the wines, what's the best place for them to go?
4: So we have our, our website is Esclan, E-E-S-C-L-A-N-S right. uh, dot com. Or if you happen to be traveling in the south of France, if you're in Nice or Cannes or uh, Saint-Tropez or Monaco, um, every day we have private tours and tastings. We'd love to have you come and visit Chateau d'Esclan, where we produce all these rosés. We'll teach you in person, and we'll show you the secret chapel where the name of Whispering Angel was invented. Very cool. (laughs) Nice
1: history. All right, so that's where you should go. Paul, thank you for taking time out of a busy festival. Um, We've been talking to Paul Chevalier. We're going to bring in Eric Asimov from the New York Times to come in. Thank you, Paul. My guest today or my next guest, is Eric Asimov. Eric is the uh, chief wine critic for the New York Times. Um, Eric, this is, what, your second or third Charleston? You've been here a few
3: times. Either fourth or fifth. Fourth I've, or 5th You're lost count.
1: You're like a, you're like a, a master guy here. Um, I want to welcome Eric back to the Grape Nation, because Eric has uh, graced our uh, hot seat here. Um, and thank you for taking some time to sit with us. It's my pleasure. Um, I want to tap into you <laughs> Um, and sort of get a bunch of information out of you while I have you here. Um, The year is not that old. I want to look back at 2018. Okay. um, And I want you to talk to me about some wine stories, trends, happenings that were significant in your mind, what you wrote about, you know, what you thought personally um, that interested you and caught your attention.
3: Well, you know... um it's always funny to talk about wine trends, and and specific, especially if you're linking them to a year, because it's as as if for human benefit, things happened in in twelve month calendar increments. I, I really knew there wasn't an like easy that. answer. <laughs> no, I dumb went for question, the New York smart Times. answer. You know, we can't, yeah, we, yeah, can't yeah, yeah. We, we can't we can't operate these. in four word sentences. Um, so. But really, most um, trends in wines are, are they're like plants. Poor stories. They, they keep growing. Yeah, stories, you just, you don't know exactly which direction they're going to go in, but they, they keep going or they, you know, they turn back. So something like um, Rosé, for example, uh, which your previous guest was talking about, right. um, that's been like a monster for 10 years now. And I was just talking to, to somebody last night here in Charleston who actually makes a rosé and, and, and sells it around the U.S. And he said he had a lot of his 2017 left over. And another guy chimed in, aha, the correction is, is beginning. and wow. And I don't think so. I don't either. I don't think so at all. You said it's
1: been hot ten years. You got to admit the last three, four, five have even been hotter.
3: Yes, because you know you you um, you move from something that is uh, has always been there and has been rediscovered, and you know maybe it's sommeliers, maybe it's wine writers asking people to take another look at this rosé. And then it, it kind of it, it moves into the realm of marketers and and right. um, and products and, and commerciality. And that can that can have an uh, effect, especially with social media and, you know, somebody like totally Kim Kardashian with, right. showing a photo of her Influence favorite bottle. In marketing.
1: But one of the people you spoke to alluded to the fact that, you know, he had some wine left over. Is there any credence to maybe there is some fatigue towards interest in rosé or drinking? Um, Are you 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 feeling that? I'm
3: sure there is inevitably a backlash because once you get you know people like Kim Kardashian and and of course um, uh, Jolie and Pitt right. involved then you know there's always John Bon Jovi yeah <laughs> I
1: mean, I mean you, you know
3: inevitably um, people are going to turn their back on it because it's it's no longer just a wine now it's a measure of your your hipness or lack thereof of your character of it, it becomes a um, a connotation and a badge so you know, it's it's that's the the weird thing about wine. You know, it, it it's it's very much its own beverage, and we can we can assess it on whether we like it or not. But it also becomes a status symbol, even for the people who are most against status symbols. Right. So the You know, the anti-status symbol people have their own wines.
1: Right. The natural
3: wine. Right. Right.
1: But that's what you said before it sort of begs the question. I mean, what effect is social media having on wine, how we perceive wine, it, even it, you as a journalist, how it's affecting wine journalism. I mean, those are all like all in different places, but
3: well, it has a, a, a huge effect because it's now you know, among the most potent methods of of marketing wine. And so when somebody like um, LeBron James, for example... Very hot in the market now on that. has really gotten into wine, and maybe counterintuitively, he actually has great taste in wine. And when he posts a bottle on on Instagram, people freak out. Same with, um, you know, I, I mentioned Kim Kardashian and any other... Uh, uh, celebrities and I know um, I have two children in their 20s and they're you know they don't they don't read... stare at their phone right oh no <laughs> 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 of course they do Yeah, right. and and you know they're very attuned to social media and and in probably you know beyond Twitter and Instagram which are my realms they've got their own Areas and, and when their friends talk about wine, you know that they're so that, very much into that.
1: The LeBron, the Kardashian thing is influencer marketing, you know, Absolutely. which which could
3: go across any product.
1: I don't know if this is the right question, but is that a good thing, a bad thing for wine? You know, if LeBron jumps into wine, is that good for wine? Is it bad for wine? I mean, does it matter um, what the wine is?
3: Well, you know what? Um, it depends on on where you're standing. Obviously, if you're in the wine business and you're you're uh, you you depend on selling more bottles. It's a great, great thing. damn thing. Um, but and you're, the, more, the more people who are, have any level of, of hipness or any any sort of following who are shown to be wine drinkers, that's a great thing for for I, selling wine.
1: Put your journalist hat on and your critic hat on. Answer the question that way. Where a LeBron is, you know, pushing wine or. Brad Pitt and Angela, I, I, I mean...
3: Well, it's it's irrelevant to me. I mean, I don't... I I love wine, and part of my job is to kind of uh, inspire people to want to be curious about it and explore for themselves, but I'm most definitely not a member of the wine trade, and whether people sell more bottles or don't sell more bottles, it's not something I have a stake in. I have a stake in, right. in covering...
1: And I think yeah. the answer—it's irrelevant to me—is it's really the yeah. sh- sh- straight-out, you know, right answer. That's just a whole different segment and all of that. Um, it's about is, the wine. What
3: What is good? What What is helpful is for somebody like LeBron, who. Is interested in good wines and not merely commercial wines or self-aggrandizement. Kim Kardashian, you know, eventually, whatever she's putting on Instagram, she has her own commercial stake in. Different
1: approaches, LeBron yeah. and Kim. Yeah. And
3: you know, LeBron has the virtue of act- of being genuinely curious about wine and really kind of a and, and a dedicated explorer. And there's no better wine consumer than than somebody who explores.
1: And he's going to touch a lot of uh, new wine people. You know his followers, that demographic, in all aspects. I, you know you, you can know.
3: you can actually see it in the NBA itself already because wine has become this this hot thing. And and you know it's not just LeBron. Um, uh, Greg Popovich of the uh, the coach of the Spurs is a great wine drinker. Uh, Kevin Love, because of LeBron, has become big into to wine. So it's it's both a team building thing. Um, Dwayne Wade has his own winery.
1: <laughs> I, I like that. You know, I and, like the fact that they can introduce wine. You know, and, and to that if nothing audience.
3: else. It's it it adds to the the more conventional demographic for wine.
1: Yeah, um, I know. I asked you about 2018, and you eloquently. Wobbled? Answered No, opposite. <laughs> you know, oh, how a, it's hard to put it in a 12-month I mean, window. there's a lot
3: more to say about it.
1: No, Well, then let's yeah. look forward a little. I mean, as we look forward into 19 or the future of wine, I mean, what are the things that are interesting you or you're covering or, you know,
3: changes? Well, um, you, you can divide this into kind of stylistic issues and, and structural issues. And one of the big focuses for me in 2019 is climate change. And, of course... You know, climate change affects everybody's life and, you know, we're all being told that we're sort of at this make or break period, but because wine is so um, clearly and demonstrably a, an agricultural product. Connected to climate. Connected to climate. The accelerating pace of climate change is really changing the way wine is made and, and will do so at a, at a much more accelerated pace in the future.
1: We had uh, Alan Meadows on in the last week, and he talked about how in 100 years they didn't Harvest in August, and in the last ten, they've done it like two times or yeah. something. That's not the exact statistics. No. And and we've had winemakers on, and, and the well, whole the, schedule and everything
3: has changed. What, what he's saying is, is absolutely correct. Things that used to be a once once in a century right. phenomenon are now once every three year phenomenon. So that doesn't just go for harvest; it goes for catastrophes, it goes for hail storms, spring frost. Um, wildfires, all of these things are are incredibly Incredible. detrimental to to wine but there are but there are you know there 's another side to it um, you know, England wasn't known for wine. I mean, even 25 years ago, uh, it was it, it, there was a sort of nascent sparkling wine production in England. It's it's accelerated at an incredible rate in the last seven or eight years, yeah. and they're making fantastic sparkling wines there now. Yeah,
1: they're getting a lot of notices for that.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: so we we can't cl- change climate. So that goes back to the winemaker. That means he has to change the way he
3: grows, farms,
1: harvests, right?
3: Exactly. I
1: mean, I guess it's earlier, and he's got to worry about ripeness, sweetness, and all that. Well,
3: you know, a lot of um, uh, a lot of this is going to be dependent on on uh, big big facilities, big production facilities with a lot of money to to do the necessary experimentation and, and exploration, and that includes um, uh, going up in elevation planting vineyards at, at, at elevations that, you know, for as long as we've known about wine, weren't really considered uh, places where you could ripen grapes. Uh, but now they South are. South America? Well, South America. Malbec, high elevations. Places, there's a lot of experimentation experimentation going on in Spain. Um, looking at uh, new or very old varieties of grapes that were maybe thought to be too acidic um, now you need that acidity to, to uh, you know, so in the heat.
1: explain to me, because
3: I don't understand.
1: We talk about climate change. We talk about looking into going into higher elevations. In reference to climate change, why go into higher elevations?
3: What's well, it's, gonna... it's cooler, for one okay. thing.
1: So you're getting away from the heat and all of yeah. that. So
3: you're forced up there.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have made wines in higher elevations, but yes. they literally may have to run for the hills. But they,
3: yes, you, you, you might know. have to run for the hills. And also, um, you know, going uh, farther north or farther south, as in the um, southern hemisphere, as you see with England. Apparently, there are, are right. vineyards now in Scandinavia. That type of climate. Um, uh, Canada. Is a good example. They're starting
1: to make more wine Some than ice wines. Some wines
3: coming out from from Niagara that are they're not ice wines. They're they're just I'm really saying regular wines. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Um. And I guess can you fit Finger Lakes into that? I mean, generally it's a shorter yeah. Course. I
3: think so. Um, I mean, I but think, but climate
1: it, change will still affect them.
3: Climate change just is going to make it easier for for them. It, it, you know, you had to plant vineyards really close to the lakes so you could have that that so called lake effect, uh, which kept things uh, warmer in, right. the, in the winter and cooler in the summer. Right. Um, you know, now it's. Uh, well, you know, Finger Lakes is a strange area, and I guess now that I think about it, you still can't go that far from the lakes, but but you no. will be threatened in the winter um, uh, with fine killing freezes. But, but they're
1: subject to the claims and cl- changes in climate, too. Yeah. You know, so yeah. even though it's a, a different microclimate and all that, um, I wanted to tap into you. I mean, Eric is the guy that conceived $25 and under, a guide to restaurants where you really, in your early days, went yep. out and found the great food and great values. I've been following you for a long time, and you do, is it an annual or more than once a year? 20 wines under $20? Well, uh,
3: probably like three or four times a year. It is three or four times? Yeah.
1: Okay, because I wasn't sure. And and I, I think your opportunity to cover stories deeply and taste a lot of wines, you really get to taste the world and, and your list 20 wines under $20 is very extensive as far as diversity, um, which is really nice. So let's talk about some regions and grapes winemakers in there and moving forward, you know, that are exciting you. I'm not asking you to comment on all 20, but there were some things there that repeated.
3: Well, the the thing about looking for good value in wine is that you have to uh, find a place that that doesn't have a... uh sort of a built-in uh, rise in price because it's already got high status. Right. So you're never going to... What's f- a good example of that? Like, you're never going to find burgundy. In right, a, in done. A 20, forget it.
1: Napa Cab. You
3: know? I mean, technically, you could say Beaujolais, but even Beaujolais has has gotten way up in price. So it, that is not always an easy uh, answer for the under $20. So your
1: challenge is to go under those and find the... Yeah.
3: And this is, you know, the great thing about today, and it keeps getting greater if you ask me about trends, uh, you know, there are so many places in the world, and I'm not talking about new places, South America or or the U.S. I'm talking about ancient winemaking regions that are basically unknown to to the outside world because for all of history, these regions were local. They made the wine and they drank the wine. Give
1: me an example of that region.
3: um, Eastern Europe? Well, no. Let's let's talk about Portugal. Let's Portugal? talk about um, the uh, the the Baga grape, which it's it's this fantastic red grape, and um, uh, it, it's native to the Baraita area of Portugal, which is a little bit uh, north of of Lisbon, and. You know, nobody nobody really did anything with it. It, it made, in, in sort of a rustic way, very tannic red wines. But um, a new people have been approaching it with the idea of making fresh, lighter red wines. And it's just brilliant, spicy, delicious. And, so the,
1: what was the name of the grape again?
3: Uh, the Baga. Spell. B a g a. It
1: spells like it sounds. Just
3: yeah, it's these. It's like the rare Portuguese grape that you that an English speaker can pronounce. Now, we're
1: New Yorkers. We're right. down
3: in Charleston.
1: Uh, a lot of our listeners are in big cities. Can you find wines made from the
3: baga grape? Yeah, you can. Um, you know, you you generally have to have a really good wine shop, right? You know, that's that's stocked by somebody who loves wine and is not just like getting the commercial. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, We know in uh, the Piedmont region of of Italy, it's famous for for Barbaresco and Barolo. Nebbiolo. uh, Yeah, Nebbiolo grape, to a lesser extent, Barbera Barbera. and Dolcetto. But there's at least a half dozen other red grapes that are just wonderful, that are almost like little um, fragments of of Nebbiolo, like uh, Fresa or um, oh okay i'm not gonna faces f r e i s to fraces
1: freisa exactly like a Frace lange wine
3: yes okay
1: these that's are, a go give me are, give me one are, or two more if you can I, remember yeah,
3: yeah. I'm, I'm having a, a little uh, mind right. vapor lock at, at the moment but ruke is another uh, Spell. r u c h e Ruque. okay
1: yeah. those are those are I great if these, you like that region
3: these are wonderful grapes um yeah,
1: um, you, you you we've discussed this before, and you've always said this because um, there's been talk about supermarket wines, mass-produced wines. You try to deliver a list to people of wines under twenty bucks. Um, you always said that in order to drink good or decent wine, there's a minimum price entry point. Like you ain't gonna get a good wine for five bucks. No, but but. In order to put your hands on a decent bottle, and we're not going to get specific if it's supermarket, yeah. where do we have to start on that? Um, is well, it the I've, 20 bucks or is it No, less? I mean,
3: I've made the the case that the best values are 15 to 25 bucks. And, you know, for convenience sake, I've, I've kept it at, at 20 bucks. But um, I'm going to test myself this year by trying to do under $12 wines, just to see, because some, you know, it's all a question of your priorities in life. For me, if I can find exciting wines for, for $20 or, not, or under, I'm very happy. Some people say, you know, wine's not that important to me. Why can't I find a... a, a I'm never going to spend more than $8 or something like that. Right. And, um, but but the,
1: the root question was, are you going to get anything decent for a... Well,
3: you know, people have General- different different um, standards for what they're looking for. And, um, you know, if, if people just want a well-made sound wine that they can enjoy with their friends or while, you know, watching television or whatever, and they're happy with that, that's great. But for the most part, because the way to keep the price so low is, is through means of production, you know, automating, um, industrializing—that's manipulating the wine. And often you end We're up not manipulating the wine. We're not fans you, you know, of agricultural wines. You have to farm, you know, huge uh, swaths of vineyard, and the, the you know the easiest and most efficient way to do that is with a lot of uh, chemical herbicides and uh, machine harvesting. And any deficiencies in the grapes you can make up for in the in the winery, and you keep costs down
1: that's the majority of of wines that are
3: yeah right but you right? know um i like to think of it uh i like the analogy of restaurants i mean if you look at the the restaurants that most people go to like the majority of restaurants that they go out to dinner at they are uh fast food restaurants or chain restaurants and that's fine. People are happy with that. That's the majority
1: but, of their consumption. Yes.
3: But there's a a minority of people who are, are truly interested in skilled, visionary chefs. Um, you know, the corner bistro, uh, exploring uh, esoteric cuisines, going to fancy Italian or French restaurants. Um, and, and, and maybe not even fancy, but it, it's a little bit like that with wine. It's where if you love wine and you want to explore and, and taste what's great at any price, and, and great can be 20 bucks or less. Right. Um, but you mentioned you're, gu- you
1: you're going to do some research on wines in the $12 range, right? Yeah. So you're going to dig deep into that. And, and
3: the reason is because readers, you know, enough readers have said, I, you know, $20. We, we're students. We can't afford that. That's a little or, too high. You know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see what's there. I kind and, of know what I'm gonna find. Well, that's
1: what I was gonna ask you. I yeah. mean, is the result inevitable? You know, where there may not be a lot, or you'll be surprised. I mean, well,
3: um, I think I will find good wines, but um, they will lack a little of of the excitement and maybe uh, uh, complexity of some of the slightly more expensive wines, and they're gonna be in really short. Supply, So you're going to find, you know, the really worthy wines at that price range are going to be made by uh, small producers in pretty much unknown European regions because they don't have the same labor or real estate costs that that we do in in the new world. Right. And um, people get mad for another reason then.
1: When are we going to start hearing about the fruits of your uh, tastings and research on $12. Oh, this will be
3: within the next uh, six weeks or so. All right, so keep
1: an eye out for uh, Eric Asimov of the New York Times in a couple of months. um, After following his 20 and under, um, we may have some great recos for some $12 wines. Um, All right, I want to thank Eric Asimov for um, coming in. Before I let you go, just tell me what you're drinking now.
3: (laughs) Uh, a bottle uh, and this of water. is not to no, <laughs> not to incriminate you or uh. be
1: inclusive or exclusive or whatever. But it, it does everything relate to uh, a column or research? Most, or?
3: Mostly, they relate to a column. So uh, give I've me been, one or two but, bottles but just on for the table. Fun. I've been drinking a lot of bubbles recently.
1: Not just champagne. Um,
3: not just champagne, although I, I love champagne. I've been drinking a lot of, of uh, Petion Naturel or uh, Petnats as, as natural people call wines. Them. Nice to hear you uh, of that. And it and it's kind of amusing when people say, "Oh, you know, Petnat, It's the new rosé. It's it's the new sparkling wine." No, the the way you make a, a Petion Naturel is by using the ans, the ancestral method, right. the oldest method, method, ancestral.
1: Yeah. Right. Well. People should be drinking more pet nats. That's a whole nother show. Pet nats and yeah. uh, natural wines and all that. Also,
3: a lot of Greek wines, whites I, and I, reds. Um, whites. Uh, I I recently did a column on Retsina, which is a uh, always been scorned and despised. And and you know one of my i uh, my um, beliefs is that when you when you criticize or 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 scorn a region, a style of wine, there's always a great example of that style at its best that you can fall in love with. So Retsina is one of them.
1: Those are all uh, good recos. I post a lot of this info on our sites so that we great. could go beyond the interview and share everything. I want to thank Eric Asimov. Eric is the wine crit- critic for the New York Times. Thank you for taking time out. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for all the info, and enjoy the rest of the festival. Thanks for having me, sir. All right. Thank you, Eric. Take care. We're gonna sit down with uh, Andre Mack now. Um, welcome to the Great Grape Nation, Andre. Thank you so much. When I saw you were down here, yeah, and I knew we were doing a bunch of shows. I wanted to track you down and try to get you on. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so um, much. I think it's great. I think you've been out there doing this for a while. Yeah. And I think you have a heck of a story to tell. Yeah, no, thank you. So I think one of the things we should kick off with is give people a little uh, background on your journey in life and wine. Got it, um, got it. Got, to, got you to where you are, which we'll talk about. No, you know, absolutely. You wine. Um,
5: my background is restaurants. I worked in a whole bunch of kind of not-so-glamorous restaurants, uh, you know. As a kid, you know, I worked at McDonald's, worked at Jack in a Box. I worked at uh, then I upgraded a little bit. I worked at um, Red Lobster. Okay, uh, none of those places
1: all the hits. Have,
5: yeah that have wine lists. And uh, you know, it was kind of the thing of gone on to bigger and better things as I um, as I finished school or we're done with school, and I end up working in finance, and that didn't kind of hit the notes that I really wanted it to hit as far as, you know, what it showed me is I really wanted my, I wanted interaction with people, and I didn't get that. Um, And I decided to go back to restaurants, and at that point I really had caught the wine bug. I had watched uh, old episodes of Frasier, um, and it was through their love of wine and that their enthusiasm about wine really wanted me so to So Frasier was wine. an influence. Oh, a huge That's influence. a first on this show. No, the huge, the, the biggest. And, like, <laughs> the funny. fact of it is is that they... Actually, there was they were dispersing real wine knowledge on that show. The right. reason why I knew '61 Bordeaux was a great vintage was from watching that show before I picked up any book.
1: Um, and so well, the, the guys that were
5: writing,
4: it yeah, probably no, it was amazing. Yeah, absolutely, they Absol- were dropping yeah, real stuff. Totally, yeah. totally.
5: You know, and then you have that full circle moment where now I find myself on the floor at the French Laundry as one of the sommeliers, and a guest brings in a bottle but of. But quickly,
1: had had we get to
5: the French Laundry? Oh, uh, you, you know, were I mean, working yeah, yeah, as no. a I was working as a South. sommelier in Texas. Is I Did some
1: certification and contesting. Yeah, you know, I, I,
5: th- I, th- I think for me, I wanted to try everything. I wanted to figure out like all this knowledge that I had in my head. You know, did I actually know it and those kind of things? And I felt like the only way to do that was through uh, through competitions. You know, so I won several competitions, found myself at the French Laundry, uh, and that but was. But the kind competitions
1: of the got people's attention. Yeah, That's I think not so, so. Yeah. That shows well, so yeah. Short. Well,
5: yeah. No, it did, right? Uh, but I think it was the journey along the way that actually landed me the job. Right, you know, so meeting someone like Paul Roberts, you know, at Cafe Annie in his heyday uh, on a Thursday, that same week, on earlier that week on Monday, he accepted the job to be the wine director for all of Thomas's properties I called him on a Thursday at the end of that night of working service he's like hey kid do you want to come to the French Laundry with me and I'm like the fuck I do right right you know no, what I mean no, like, no, are you kidding me no lap yeah yeah, yeah yeah there. yeah no not even close and uh, so you pack up you go to French I, Laundry I went on the next day you know it took a few months but like I eventually made my way to the French Laundry and the whole idea was is that's where I was going to stay I had no real desire to move to New York So
1: whether you revealed it or not, Mm -hmm. did you feel you were ready? Were you intimidated? Or were you like, I got this? this What was your feeling? I think the interesting thing for me was more like I
5: wasn't real sure. I had never worked in a fine dining restaurant, so that's why I felt like I was off guard. Um, But the fact of it was is that I I knew that there was going to be nobody there that worked harder than me. It was, that was just never gonna happen. Hustle. You know, you know, I worked 33 days in a row as soon as I landed there. Right? It was all about, you know, how can I, how can I get two for one? Every day that I spent at the restaurant needs to be the equivalent of two or three or more days. And, um, I, and I, you know, for anybody who's ever worked with me, uh, you can vouch for that. They they would totally vouch for that. And I just worked my ass off. And eventually, as the hype started to build for New York, I felt like I couldn't sit on the sidelines. For the chef's homecoming, and it was something that I wanted to be a part of, and um, so I spoke So what are you up. alluding
1: to? You do how many years at? Yeah, uh, so French I'd say yeah, i like two years or
5: something like that, something and like then that. Yeah,
1: you're talking about moving east. So then I moved uh, per to New se? York.
5: So then I moved to New York and opened up Per Se, um, and I ran the which beverage was Thomas there Keller's three, yeah. first New, New York, sister, yeah, the sister restaurant, very of anticipated Laundry. restaurant, um, and yeah, and I had like this amazing time. Uh, it was really wonderful. It was really great. It was kind of like sh- written straight out of a fairy
1: tale book. So there's a funny side story I want yes. you to tell. I picked up this book about a woman who yes. talked about the behind-the-scenes yes. thing in the restaurant world. Yes. And it did focus specifically <laughs> on Per Se. Yes. And, you know, I loved it because I love that kind of crap. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was a bestseller and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Tell absolutely. me who that
5: person is. That's actually my wife now. Okay.
1: Uh, I met and this woman. And then give me the connection and talk yeah, about the book
5: Yeah, so quickly. she... Uh, I met my wife. She was a a waiter, a captain, the first female captain on the floor at Per Se. She had waited on Frank Bruni maybe four out of the five times that he actually came to the restaurant. She
1: writes about
5: that. Yeah, yeah. so she writes about that in the book. Um, I had met this woman, and uh, she, you know, this is kind of around the craze of uh, Sex in the City. And she's talking to me about... You know, what she wants to do in life, I want, want to be a writer and I want to write a column. And so she's going through this whole process of like about what's cool about a column. When you write a column that you can put all of those pieces together, write a forward and now it's a book. And all throughout when she worked at Per Se, she was going to Sarah Lawrence for her MFA and she was writing these small stories about what was happening in her life. And I, one day I just came to her, I said, well, you already have a book. You've been writing a column this whole time about what's going on in your life. Package that together and that she be a book and then she went on to write this book which is more which is less about a tell all maybe a tell some but was really a love letter to the restaurant to the restaurant industry and to myself right the book is about an ivy league educated woman who found herself at the most anticipated restaurant opening in New York City in the last 25 years and so she writes about that and then she meets a dark and mysterious and handsome sommelier that's me two out of three uh, uh, yeah <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> Yeah, <right. laughs> and and that was kind of it and um, I think we I think we have aspirations to do all these different things in life, but we really sometimes we really need a push and something that actually pushes over the edge and uh, um, not actually really physically having to choose between this woman that I loved and the restaurant that I worked at. Um, on, you know, As you can imagine, it was uncomfortable. She wrote this book that, that Thomas didn't really approve of. But it gave me the push and the urge to say, you know what? I wanted to continue to learn about wine. And I felt like the only way to do that was to go out and make my own. Um, this was an extraordinary job, One, once in a lifetime. I think most people who work there will never leave it. And I think some of that is afraid of what's next. Or not wanting to to confront right. what's next, and it's for a me, kind of
1: person, that. I,
5: re- I realized that and I needed to go somewhere else. We'll talk about what, yes.
1: you, what you did or doing yes. now, but I, I just want to get your take on a few things. Yes, um, there's definitely a new generation of wine drinkers out there, right? Absolutely. I think that you're keying into that um, in two different ways. First of all, what is that? Who is the new generation of? Wine drinkers—is it millennials? Is it a little older? I mean, what is it? Well, I,
5: I think I, I think it's it's all of that, right? I think all of the people who felt felt that they felt that they weren't included—that wine wasn't a part of who they were—they didn't look at wine and feel like they could be a part of it. And I think when you have so that is millennials, and that that's also people. I don't even know what the fuck generation I am, but or whatever they well, call people that. Who
1: felt left out on the and thing. Correct. And, and,
5: and, and, and I think a lot of times when I say that, a lot of people obviously gravitate to people who look like me and that is one. But also it's just younger people when they can identify with someone that they realize that, oh, wow, like it, this is not just for... You know, they think about wine. They think about it's a guy in a suit with an ascot on, right? Right. And then they see someone show up that's got like fucking wearing Vans or like listen to a certain type of music. Like they didn't realize that that included that included them. And that you know, I feel like just me being visible and being out there, you know, that helped people say, oh wow. You know, I show up to places. People are like, well, you don't look like any winemaker I've ever seen before and then I start laughing they're like no I'm just talking about the, the glasses the earrings right, and the hats and I was like I know exactly
1: what you're talking about it's like and when a female sommelier yeah, yeah, comes yeah. here hey where's the sommelier yeah yeah like, absolutely yeah absolutely um, so that's a good segue into my yeah. next question because I think you're very skil- skillful at this and and it'll lead into talking about Maison Noir absolutely. wines um, how instrumental has social media been for you your mission your brand and all that and Think about doing this, you know, without it. Well, I mean, this is the interesting
5: thing. I discount a lot of that in, in a lot of ways, in, in a weird way. I'm only, I've only embraced social media, I've only been an early adapter of it because of my friend Gary Vanderchuk. Right. So
1: a good, Gary was a good, always the dude
5: was like, hey, man, you should be on Twitter. I'm like, what the hell is that? He's like, just go sign up and get your name, get your so business on his names.
1: coaxing, you oh, put on Oh, absolutely, yeah. That. So
5: I met Gary when we were... Uh, Gary was Wine Library before Wine Library TV he had come into Per Se uh, to have dinner with a distributor so he was there my wife was actually waiting on the table my girlfriend at the time and I remember Gary gets up to go to the bathroom, and I'm looking at all the guys around him. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Like, who is this guy? And they go on to explain who we are. And then me and Gary become fast friends. Um, we shared a lot, talked a lot about, like, where he wanted to be in life and, and exactly where he is now. We talked and mused a lot about those things before. Um, and as he was building different businesses and all these different things, you know, I was kind of there, you know, afar, being there and, like, listening to him. And he was always, like... Hey, and technology was a big thing for me. And to see how he incorporated technology into his business and how he did those things was really fascinating. And we became friends. And every time that there was something new, he was like, dude, you need to get on that. You need to check this out. You need to do that. And it was only because of him being an, I was an early adapter. And, and got to use those things, and I use them in, in, in different ways. Um, so I think it has helped me. So he pulled you into oh, it. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You got engaged. Absolutely. You stayed with it. He Correct. kept nudging you.
1: Yeah, he was like, dude, you got to be on this. Hey, now have you checked out Instagram? But the like, initial yeah. question, that that has become an important part of Correct. what you no, do. Is ab- it necessary? Absolutely.
5: absolutely. I think it is, right? I think it's another way to be able to tell your story. Uh, and I think what happens is sometimes is that um, you ha- also get to show the human side of that. Like, if you look at it, like... You know, what it, what, a, what it meant to be a celebrity many years ago was was shrouded in mystery, right? So the, the more right. the more recluse you could be, <laughs> Less the better. Now. And, 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 and they didn't see you. But a big thing of what you see what happens now, look at someone like Will Smith, who was an old Hollywood star. And now he's become a big Hollywood star because he's really adapted. And what we all wanted was an, an inside peek into his life and what it looked like. And and now he's become one of the biggest stars in that. And I feel like, in the same way, on the winery side is is that it's just not showing pictures of your grapes or talking about the wine, but also showing the human side of what it is and and the the every and the everyday of that, right? Because to the layman who's driving through, the, the those vines all look the same. What really sets us all apart is our stories and being able to, to tell them and who we are and like what we find funny, what we don't find funny, what we eat, what we drink. Um, it all seems narcissistic in some way, but but that but 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 but
1: it, but it but but there's people who want that. When we talked about a newer generation of wine drinkers, they yes. think the story Car- is more important. Well, absolutely. You know, I agree with that. Listen, I can't let you leave here and we definitely have a little time to talk about where you know when you left, correct. What you're doing, correct. So I left in 2007,
5: and I really wanted to be, I really wanted to learn more about wine, continue to learn more about wine. At this point, you know, you know, I had one of the best jobs in the world for what I did, as being a sommelier. I had five sommeliers that worked for me, but the downside of that is that I didn't get to touch wine in the way that I wanted to, right? You know, it was about meetings, meetings and, and meetings with, my, with with the people that worked for me and all kinds of other stuff. And I wanted to be back to hands-on and learning about wine. And I felt like the only way to do that was to make my own. So if I could make my own, that could scratch several other itches I had for me. One, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and then secondly, I wanted to have more creativity in my life. Um, and in a roundabout way, I had no money, had nothing. Uh, I had all the relationships that I had. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in putting it out of the universe. I wrote an email to everybody I had ever worked with saying, uh, I was a great meeting them and having this relationship with them and that I was moving on to go make wine and hopefully our paths will cross at some point. Uh, and from that, uh, and from using that platform to say what I wanted to do next, there was an, uh, an outpour of people saying that they wanted to help me get there. Uh, and long story short. You know, I started this company, we were making wine in California, we made wine in in Napa, in Lompoc, uh, and then finally settled on a place that really spoke to me was the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Uh, And so we've been there since 2007. And we've just been really making what I like to call food-friendly style wines. We really wanted to focus on everyday luxury wines, wines that were under $20 on the retail shelf, um, that actually could be featured in restaurants by the glass program, um, and that really were transparent and honest and truly spoke of a place and over-delivered.
1: Do you think we should tell people what the name of the wine is Absolutely. At this point? The name
5: of the wine is called, the name of my company is called Maison Noir Wines. We make a bevy of different wines, what we're probably most known and the, for. And you
1: talked about what the mission is. Correct. I mean, which is making Correct. well-sourced wines Correct. at a good price. Correct. I mean that's always that's always been it, right? Like when People you looked don't at pull it, it off, though.
5: we want we well, you know, no one was talking about like they were talking they when they talk about wine by the glass, they always talked about price. They never talked about quality. And when I thought about wines by the glass, those wines need to be wines that were higher in acid, right? So they could last longer when they're open. So not that two to three, but that three to four day range, right? Right. right? And then acids and amplify. The reason why you put salt on food, lemon on seafood, is really to crank up the flavors of a dish. So that's more of a condiment, right? And we wanted to make the those wines um, and that and that and I felt like that we're honest and that's kind of where we went and so we you know we make other people's pinot OPP for short which it's you know it's basically you know it is it's the benchmark wine that we make it you know it's everyday you know, it's my interpretation of everyday drinking Willamette Valley peanut and wine. everything is sourced from Oregon everything's from Oregon so we have long-term contracts that we've used um, Any aspirations of property and growing grapes? Well, I mean, I mean, the the fact of it is, is that this is the interesting part. When you can control the farming, then you don't really need to to buy the land or own the land. So if you right. get your get so yourself all your in partnerships of land, that, with farmers, yeah, are, yeah, Well, you have some input and you get to control that. You know, and I and this is the different part, right? I'm under. I I've been around long enough that I know I understand that that things are shifting. You know, now it's about more about experiences. So having a property could be important. So we'll see that, you know. But right now, we had to, I built it in the old world terms, uh, and and so we built it that way. And, you know, around the corner will be, you know, there will be, you know, there is property, but there will be a space for people to come and gather. uh, And we've realized that. We've opened a family business in New York, uh, which will open in May. Uh, It's called Ann Sons, it's our American charcuterie bar. Uh, So, all American charcuterie. It's in uh, Prospect Lefferts Garden in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, it's all-American charcuterie, all-American cheese, all-American wine with a focus on wines from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, Very you cool know, twenty-seat wine bar, uh, and it's really you know the embracing this thing of like, and uh, really to understand where we're going in the future, we need to really look back and embrace our past, and being able to look at how those wines were made and, and understanding the
1: people who came before us is how we're going to take American wine to the next forefront. Great project. Yep. Um, you mentioned OPP. Yes. Before we uh, sign off, you, you have a lot more. You bottle a lot. Yeah. More stuff. No. Absolutely. Tell me about it. You know, a couple of the yeah. The, so the uh, bigger, you know, other brand. people's
5: Pinot. We do. Pinot Noirs, which we started in 2009, and you know that's kind of what we're known for. This you know, most case production that we do of that particular wine. We have OPP uh, Pinot Gris, uh, which is my interpretation of Pinot Gris, which is more on the Alsatian side. Love Drunk is our rosé. We started that in 2009, and that's continued to grow, and, and you've seen it kind of ride this wave of uh, of, of rosé and how that's kind of ridden uh, into the sunset. Uh, knock on wood is our stainless steel Chardonnay. Uh, you know, for me, I've always taken to naming them, naming the wine something that. Uh that I think that resonates with people. Uh, you know, my thought was always, is if I just put Andre Mack on the label, people are like, who the hell is this guy? Like, you know what I mean? Like, when I say knock on wood, we sub Love Drunk. Those mean something to people. Right. They, they, There's a they run through their, yeah, yeah they run through their mystique their to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, and then we do single vineyard wines, Orgonia, Touche. So we kind of run the gamut. You know, we have the single vineyard wines that I still get to be experimental and be out there and be more hands-on. And then we have our everyday luxury wines, which... Um, which it seems that we it gives us a chance to connect with people on a broad scope from not just here in the United
1: States, but to the 22 other countries that we sell wine in. All right, so the name of the wine is Maison Noir. If people want to find out more information... Sure. You
5: can go to masonnoirwines.com uh, and there's a bevy of information there. Uh, if you live in a state or if you're one of the 33 states that we ship to, you can definitely order from there.
1: Um, so we you, could, are, you could buy directly from the correct. site? Absolutely. You can buy directly We're from distributed us.
5: Distributed in stores? We're distributing in stores. We're in almost every single state, so maybe 47 okay. states. Uh, so you can definitely find us Does there. Does the site point you to retailers if you want? Uh, yes, you can, can you actually look find retailers. Like you Yeah, yeah. My yep, yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, All right. Absolutely. I want
1: to thank Andre Mack. Andre Mack is the proprietor of Maison Noir Wines. You heard his story, and it's a fun and exciting one, and he's making some pretty good wines. Um, thank you for stopping by You're welcome. and taking some time. Um, thank you. You're listening to the Grape Nation and Thank you to Lake Crusade and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour Charleston wine and food possible. I'm Sam Ben Ruby for Heritage Radio Network and the Grape Nation. Remember, Heritage Radio Network is a member supported nonprofit based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Listen to over 10,000 episodes of Food Radio podcasts and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you. Thanks for
5: listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.